You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Thanks, Travis. Y'all can take a seat. Uh, Glad to be with you guys this morning. Way, like Suzanne said, way to go getting up on a Thanksgiving week when it's cold. So we are the, the remnant here, a little smaller uh, just because we lose a lot of our students in such a young church. We have uh, so many folks that go out of town to see their families for Thanksgiving, but you're the diehards and committed, so thanks for being here, particularly if you served this morning. I know we've got a lot of people substituting serving, uh, so we're really, really grateful for you. I do see some new faces, so I'll introduce myself. My name is Justin. I uh, serve as the associate pastor. Uh, really glad to see you guys here as our guests and hope that you really experience God's love uh, for you this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our teaching series on the Upper Room Discourse. This is what we've been doing, what we're going to do several times throughout the whole uh, course of this next year. And the Upper Room Discourse is really cool. It's just this time when Jesus, the last night before he was going to be betrayed, he actually spends time with his disciples, has conversation, and gives them a lot of instruction about how he's going to leave them. And so it causes a lot of friction and a lot of curiosity. Uh, You see bits of it in all the Gospels, but really in John 13 through 17, we get the really extensive. John, for whatever reason, recorded at length this conversation and the instruction that took place on this last uh, night that Jesus was with his disciples. And it's in the upper room that they're having this conversation. And uh, that we're going to look next week, we're going to actually start our Advent series, and we're going to look at John 14, kind of through the lens of the Christmas seasons. That's going to be really fun. But today we're going to uh, go back to the very end of John chapter 13 and really just use it as a kind of starting point to talk about the life of Peter, which I'm really excited to talk about the life of Peter because some of you all know, uh, maybe some of you don't, uh, that, that Brenda and I actually had the chance to go to Israel a couple weeks ago. And we did a 10-day tour where we got to walk on the places that Jesus walked. We got to walk in the spaces that Peter walked. And I'm going to just show you some photos, so that's going to be kind of fun. Um, It's not just going to be a slideshow. What we're going to do is we're going to look into the life of Peter, because in the story that we just read, Peter makes this bold promise that he's not going to deny Jesus, but we'll find out later that he did. But then we'll find out beyond that that Jesus came back to him and said, I want to restore our relationship. And so it's going to be a fun topic for us to look at. But to do so, I think one of the things that I like to do is to try to get our hearts like in the place where we can receive, almost even maybe our hearts in like an emotional space where we can receive this story. And I'll start by then just asking a question and give you a chance to think about it. Have you ever found yourself doing something that you promised you would never do? Have you ever found yourself promise, doing something that you promised yourself, promised others, or maybe promised God that you would never do or, or maybe never do again? We've all been there, right? Have you ever broken your promise, something, a promise that you made to yourself, to others, or to God himself? Maybe it's things like the promise you made never to raise your voice to your family or your kids or your spouse, and you've done it again. Or maybe it's the, the promise that you're not going to gamble in again, but you, just, you had to get, get down one more bet. Or it's the promise that you would never look at that website again, but you've gone to the website again. Or it's the promise that you were never going to cheat on the person that you're dating, or the person you were married to. You weren't going to steal money from the workplace. or You promised that you were going to stop consuming something, or at least over-consuming something, yet you've done it again. Or You promised that you wouldn't date someone outside the faith, yet you find yourself intrigued and wanting to pursue a relationship with someone you never thought that you would date. Or maybe you're just simply made a promise not to work overtime, and you've worked overtime, and you've broken your promise to your family. Or maybe as simple as 
promising God that you want to spend time with him, but you find yourself uh, sleeping in and pushing the snooze button too many times. Or maybe it's like in this case, you've made a promise to someone you actually betrayed them or disowned them. We can all relate, right? I'm trying to get us in that space where we can feel what, what Peter would have been feeling. And then when you do that, what do you do? Like when you've broken your promises, what, is, what are the things that you tend to do? Do you get depressed? Do you kind of spiral into some sort of an addiction? Do you, do you think, just wallow in your shame and just get stuck there? Or do you like hide from others or, or disconnect from community when you've done something like that? Or do you double down? Do you make your overpromise again and say, I'm going to do this much more and more and more and make more and more promises? Or do you confess to others and call out to them? Or do you actually remember the gospel and what Jesus has done for you? We're all promise breakers. We're all like Peter in the story that we're going to read. And that should give us some comfort <laughs> to know that we are among the people that Jesus pursues that break our promises. And so if you're able to, I'd love for you to just kind of feel that space of, of remembering Things that maybe you've broken promises this week. It could have been yesterday and you've got one really fresh that comes to mind. Or maybe you look back even not necessarily at one instance, but you look at a season of your life where you were breaking a promise or something that you made to yourself or to others or God. Like that's the space that Peter was in that we're going to look at today. So let's start by looking at at what Peter promised, the passage that that, uh, Travis already read. Let's read it again. My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Simon Peter, we're skipping uh, to 36 now. Simon Peter then asked, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Recently, I've been trying to to, to do a practice when you read the narrative parts of the Bible and stories like this to try to feel like, feel like maybe what were the emotions that they were feeling, trying to get in touch with my feelings, but looking through the lens of Scripture, like what were they feeling? And you got to understand that these are some very important words. And, and, and Jesus had made reference to the fact that he was leaving his disciples, and he made reference to the cross and things like that, but the disciples never really got it. And this is the last conversation that he's having, and he's telling them the most direct that he's ever said, that I'm going away from you. Now, Peter had all these expectations. had been walking with Jesus for three years. What, what do you think he felt? He felt sad. Like, why, why are you leaving us? Where are you going? That's why he asked the question, like, well, where are you going? And more importantly, because Jesus says twice here that you can't come. He asked him, like, where are you going? He says, well, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's like, well, why can't I come? I want to be with you. He was in a sad state. He was uh, in despair, you would say. He was questioning everything that he had. He was questioning even in an insecure state of mind, like thinking, well, I had all these hopes and projections for what the future was going to be like. Now, what, what's happening? And in that place, he makes his promise that he will follow Jesus uh, to his death. And then it's Jesus that asks the question, will you, will, you really, will you really follow me? Can you imagine how that would have made Peter feel? <laughs> Just so confused. He promised that he'd never disown Jesus, yet just a few hours later, he's going to do it, which is where we'll pick up the story, kind of jumping from John 13, now jumping into John 18. At the very end of this this night, by the way, we're reading the whole, you know, upper room discourse. At the very end of it, after we get to John 17, that's when Jesus actually goes down to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and it's in that place that he prays that Judas, who he just dismissed in the passage that we read last week, goes off, he gets the Roman soldiers, gets the religious leaders, and they come to take Jesus captive. 
And that's kind of where you pick up the story here. He was actually brought to the courtyard of Caiaphas for the first trial. In John 18, Simon Peter and the other disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. So this is probably John referring to himself. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple who was known by the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty, and there brought Peter in. You aren't, the, uh, you aren't one of the man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around by the fire to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them and warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples. And if you were to read further there, they slapped Jesus, they beat Jesus, they mock Jesus. And then you get to the end here. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing, warming himself. So they asked him, are you one of his disciples too? And he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster began to crow. Peter's promise was broken, but Jesus' promise was fulfilled. And if you're to read, you know, you combine these stories, you read the way that Gospel Luke records it. It says that as they crowed, they actually connect eyes with one another. That Peter and Jesus see each other as the rooster crows. Can you imagine? That's why it rightly says that in, in the Luke's account, Jesus went outside and he wept bitterly. This was one of the most moving spots that I was at in Israel. I think we'll have some pictures up here behind uh, there's a statue here and representing the very place where this took place. You've got the, the rooster there. And what we would do as a, as a, as a team, uh, the, tour, the, the group that was on this tour with us, is our pastor, Rob Harrell, we'd go to these different sites and then he would read from the passage that this actual location signifies. And he would read this passage and, and then we would just reflect on it for five, six minutes. And then you were just kind of free to just be with yourself and, and walk the site and, and think about the story from a new lens. Uh, uh, the next picture that you have there was one of the things that felt most authentic to me because this was the courtyard of Caiaphas. That's the uh, next photo. And these steps that you see were 2,000 years old. Like those were the steps that Jesus would have walked down when he was in this courtyard. These were the place. This was the place where Peter was warming his hands and denied Jesus for the third time. As we walked around that place after Rob gave his, you know, we read the story together as a team, and I just kind of went around trying to get in touch with it. One of the things that I thought about, like, what, what was Peter feeling in that moment? Like, such, such anxiety, such fear. Like, he had just seen Jesus be hit, so he's wondering, like, how could this happen? What, what is this going to happen? This wasn't what I expected. And lots of anxiety, lots of fear of what could happen to him and brought him to a place where, in that emotional state, he did what he said he would never do. He said he'd never deny Jesus, but he disowned him three times. I can relate. Can y'all relate? <laughs> I can relate because I find that whenever I'm tempted to deny Jesus in any way, it's usually because there's something going on inside me, some sort of emotion. So I'm tempted to deny Jesus in my life when I have feelings of, of anger or insecurity. That makes me want to say and do things that I said I wouldn't do or, or said I wouldn't say. Or I'm most tempted to deny Jesus uh, when I'm feeling sad or depressed, or in despair, or something. That's when I'm most tempted to try to find some, uh, some comfort to numb the pain. Or I'm most tempted to deny Jesus when I'm battling fear and anxiety, when I have those emotions. That makes me want to control people and control my circumstances. Or when I feel guilt and shame, I'm tempted just to repeat the behaviors and, and take them on just as my identity. It's those feelings that make us break our promises. There's something behind it. Can, can you relate to that? 
Like, like in one sense, we're in really good company, and that should be comforting <laughs> to be like, yes, I, I can relate to Peter's story. But what is even more comforting is what takes place next in this third scene that we'll look through uh, with Peter, the profound and meaningful way Jesus comes to him and he says, in essence, I'm not through with you yet, Peter. Let's look at Peter's restoration. Now we're jumping to John 21. In the last chapter of John, we read about the time when Jesus, uh, after his resurrection, appears to Peter and some of the other disciples. And this is how the story goes. Kind of a long story, but I want to read it. Uh, Picture yourself there in this story. Afterward, Jesus appeared to his disciples at the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. I like the way John writes it. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana uh, in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul it in because of a large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. He jumped into the water. The other disciples followed on the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a 100 yards. When they landed and saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread, of all things, Jesus said, bring me some fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 to be exact. But even, that, uh, uh, even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, to know how unique the story is, you have to know a little bit of the backstory about Peter, because this is a very, very unique thing that Jesus did, because what it's doing is reminding Jesus, or reminding Peter of the very first time that he met Jesus. If you're familiar with that story, the first time that Jesus and Peter meet, Peter had been fishing and hadn't caught anything, and he says, hey, Simon, why don't you go out and throw out your nets again? And he does. He throws them out. He says, just because you say so, I'll do it. And he does it, and they haul this huge amount of fish. And Peter is so struck by this miracle of Jesus that he runs to Jesus' feet. He bows down and says, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. But what does Jesus say? He says, come, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. His natural response to Jesus doing something in the first time that they were met, the first time that he called him was to say, go away. And Jesus says, no, come near. Go away. Jesus says, come, come near. Jesus had plans He knew that he was going to do something with Peter's life. And I don't know about you, but whenever I have uh, issues with with broken promises and repeated sins, one of the things that I do is I I want to kind of cave in on myself and and not believe that God loves me anymore, that I'm beyond uh, his care. And you wonder if that was what Peter was feeling here on the beach, right? We don't quite know what was happening with him, but here after having denied Jesus, maybe he thought his time with Jesus was over. It was too late since gone, like he disqualified himself. Maybe he was even actually starting to go back to fishing, thinking this is what I'm going to do. I can't be a disciple anymore. I guess I'm just going to start fishing again. Whatever his state, he knows that he had denied Jesus multiple times, and now Jesus appears to him and reminds him of the very first time that he called him, reckoning that whole story back again. You remember what I did the first time? Let's do it again to remind you that 
Come near. And if that's not enough, look what he does next. It says, when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Sound familiar? Why did Jesus ask him three times? He's giving him the three times that he's owed him. He's giving him three more chances to reaffirm that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know. You know that I love you. What amazing grace. Reckoning him back to his previous first calling, taking away the offense of these, uh, disowning him three times and giving him a chance to reaffirm his love for him. He said again at the very end, come follow me. Don't go away. Come, come near. Amazing. I think what he's saying here, and this is the title of a sermon this morning, is I'm not through with you. I'm not through with you yet. Have you ever felt like God might be through with you? That maybe you did something one too many times and that was it? God's saying, I'm not through with you. Even though someone who had disowned him like Peter did, even someone who broke his promise. If I was to pick the most powerful place that we saw in Israel, for me, that would actually be the scene where this took place, at least the one they marked. It might not be as authentic as the Caiaphas' house, but we know it was on the Sea of Galilee, and they've commemorated this one part of the Sea of Galilee as being the place where Jesus restored uh, Peter. So we should have uh, a picture here of Jesus restoring Peter in that statue, and these next two photos just show what we would do. Again, Rob would be teaching, and he'd be teaching our group of our folks, and we just read this story. We read the story, and then we got a chance to spend another 10, 15 minutes just walking around, thinking about it, remembering it. And what if this really was the place? I think we've got a picture of the sea here. If you see, if you see on the sea, they said that they were just about 100 yards out. So uh, is there one, Jenny, that's just the water? Like, look at that. Like, there was Peter and these disciples about 100 yards out. There's Jesus making breakfast for everybody while they're out fishing. That's where the miracle took place. Amazing. And the next photo here, uh, you'll see that Brenda and I actually got to go down and touch the water. And I'll admit it, I'll confess, we stole a rock from the Sea of Galilee, <clears throat> brought it home to remember the story. But to, but to hear the story in that location is just sit there. And what we're encouraged to do is just go sit, sit on the beach. Just sit there and think about the story and the love and the grace of God that he would call someone back. Peter stuck most likely in a very deep cycle of shame maybe taking on as an identity that I am now the, I'm the promise breaker. I'm the guy that can't keep his word to Jesus. I'm the one that disowned him. That state, that's where Jesus would come to meet him, simply just offering him some breakfast and giving these two vivid indications that, no, remember that first calling? Same. You deny me three times, here's your three chances to profess your faith in me again. How beautiful, how amazing God's grace this was a catalyst that Jesus was trying to create, create a catalytic moment, a moment for Peter to be restored, a moment for him to remember for the rest of his life and change his life and remember, hey, I still want to be in relationship with you. You're still part of the group. Let's go. 
Come follow me. Let's keep this movement going. And what I tried to think this week, I was trying to think about when, when have I seen this kind of played out in someone's life or that's even someone's life that I was a part of. Uh, there was really one story um, that, that came to mind. Um, there's a little bit of a backstory to the story. Um, about 20 years ago, um, I had a, a friend, uh, two friends get married. We, I knew them both, but early in their engagement process, I kind of thought like, this is probably not a good relationship. And I didn't say anything. And and a couple years later, they got divorced. And so kind of from that time on, I promised myself like, all right, I'm going to do the hard thing from now on. If there's a, if there's a couple that I think shouldn't get married, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak my piece and try to pr- say something. And so I'd like to say that I kept that 100%. And I'm not referring to any of you in this room, by the way. <clears throat> um, but I have kept it almost 100%. And there was one couple that uh, was, was uh, part of a campus ministry that I was a part of. And uh, they were engaged, and during the period of their engagement, um, I just saw some red flags and just thought that this wasn't a good, a good situation. And so I had a very hard conversation. I was closer to the female. Um, I'm going to uh, protect their identities and, as best I can, so I'll just refer to him and her. And I, I pulled her aside and said, hey, I, I just think you're in a much stronger spiritual state than him, and, and you know, I'm concerned about this uh, relationship. Well, uh, one of the things that I do whenever I do have the boldness to have that conversation, the last thing that I say in those conversations is, but if you get married, I'm 100% behind you. <laughs> like, everything switches at that moment, and I'm for your marriage, and I'm going to fight for your marriage, and, and I did. I actually ended up uh, joining uh, the church that we were a part of. We were in a small group together, and then I actually started meeting uh, one-on-one with this, with this guy, and man, I come to find out that he had a really, uh, really difficult childhood, uh, really uh, narcissistic father, lots of abuse that was there, and a lot of things that helped me realize kind of, whoa, he's got this really big backstory and was caught like in a lot of uh, shame and unworthiness was kind of his kind of storyline that had been kind of embedded into him. And we were just starting to see some fruit and some growth and some working through that uh, before they actually both got jobs and they had to move. And so they moved away, kept in touch as best that I could uh, from long distance. Uh, But then a few years later, um, they called to tell me that, that he had had an affair. And so we, uh, we worked through it, um, tried to help them with their marriage. They sought counsel, uh, sought they were part of a great church that cared for them well during that, and we're really starting to make recovery. And I forget the exact timeline of the details of this part, but a few years later, it came out that he had had many more affairs. And uh, ultimately, it meant that they, they couldn't uh, save their marriage. And uh, one of the hardest things and wildest things was that... Uh, when all that came out, that the, the other parts were all discovered, um, he came to spend the night with me in Austin. And in one way, it was like really refreshing because he put it all out there. Everything was on the table. And when he spent the night with me in Austin, we ended up watching a um, really cool video, um, kind of a movie uh, called The Heart of Man that just looks at how, how transforming God's grace can be and how nothing, God is never through with us. He's never through with us. There's always a chance to come back. He's always wanting to restore us. And we watched this, and when it ended, we were crying, and, and, and we're crying. And then I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, you were right. So apparently, um, his wife had told him about our conversation. I figured she had, but we had never really talked about it. Um, but with those tears in his eyes, he said, you're right. I'm not, I'm not the godly man. I'm not a godly man. I'm not. I'm, I'm not, I'm not. It was almost like a, the... Peter locking eyes with Jesus after he did what he said he wouldn't do, and, and here he was doing something that he said, you're right. And I said, you don't have to be. 
I said, you don't have to be. You can be that. This is your catalytic moment. This is your chance to turn because God is not through with you. I'd like to say that he received it and embraced God's grace and believed that his God's grace was for him. Uh, ultimately, he didn't. They tried to work on their marriage a little bit longer, um, and then they ended up getting uh, divorced. Uh, I stayed in touch with a, with a female friend uh, more than I have with him, and she's grown tremendously because she thought that her story is not through, that God's not through with her. And he, she says that God's still not through with him as well. She told me now that her, uh, this is pretty wild now, her, her ex got a job in another city and he's working for this one boss, a real small company working for this one boss. And guess what? His boss is an incredibly godly man with a wonderful family and they've invited him into their home and into their church. And you just see again and again God coming back, giving him these uh, fish on the beach, proverbial fish on the beach moments to return because God's still not through with him. I reached out to my uh, the female friend and asked her, like, can I tell this story? And so she gave me permission to tell the story. And one of her last uh, texts that she sent to me, she said this. Um, I believe he suffered childhood trauma uh, from a controlling and verbally abusive father, likely narcissist, that laid the groundwork for him acting out. Recovery likely looks like accepting his childhood and framework that made him who he is today. Working through that trauma and doing the work to believe that he's truly worthy of God's love and belonging not because of his actions, but because he's a human person with intrinsic value, because God designed him and made him and welcomed him in his arms, with his arms wide open. See, it's her understanding and her personal experience with God's love and God's grace that allows her to still keep hoping that her ex would embrace it, would receive it, would, would take this moment on the beach, the proverbial beach of his life, and receive and respond to God's love because God is not through with him. God's not through with Peter, and God's not through with, with any of us. So what about you? Do you believe that God's not through with you yet? It's possible that there's someone here this morning that like, you would consider yourself a promise breaker from something really specific in your life right now. If so, I'd urge you to receive God's love and God's grace for you, to receive it, to take this proverbial sure moment with Jesus and respond to him calling you back into relationship with him, calling you back into the community of believers. Respond to his grace. If that's you, when we sing these next set of songs that talk about how God's pursuing us, how God's after us, and we sing and marvel at his grace, respond to it. Believe. Receive his love and come back and follow him. Maybe some of you don't have that experience right now. You maybe don't feel like there's something in your life right now that you feel like God is calling you back from. There's no broken promise right now. But for you, what I want you to do as we continue our time of worship here shortly is I want you to think back at a period of time when it was, because it's true for all of us. We can all point back to a period where we say, yes, that was a moment where I had the proverbial fish on the, on the shore with Jesus, where I felt that he was calling me back, forgiving me for my broken promises, forgiving me for denying and disowning him. Reflect back on that moment as we sing these songs, and that's glory in God's grace and mercy and sing about it. The primary reason that we take communion uh, each week is because we want to remember what Jesus did for us. And so let's remember whether it's something today or whether it's something in a season of your life that you want to look back on. Receive God's love, God's mercy in the elements that we receive. I'd invite our uh, communion folks to go and distribute the elements, but as I do, I want to reflect on one thing that I think is really unique in this story. 
Um, when Jesus was denied by Peter, that same night he went to the cross for Peter. The same day. He knew what Peter was going to do. He was the one that said, I promise that you're going to do this. <laughs> you made a promise to me. I'm telling you how it's really going to happen. You're going to disown me. But even knowing that, even in the same story in, in John 13, when, when Jesus gives the, 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 the bread and the, and the wine one more time to Judas, that was one more chance for him to say, I, I repent, I change, I receive your love. And what I love about the story is that even when Jesus was on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I've been, I've been reflecting on that a lot lately because I find myself whenever I sin or stray, sometimes I've been saying, Father, forgive me because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> like I don't really know what's the heart behind whatever's happening inside me right now. And Jesus sees that. That's why he would be able to pray that, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. And what I really love is this account in Luke. So in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke's recording the same events in the same conversation where he promised that he would be a promise keeper, and Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me, Luke actually records this one thing that's not in the other Gospels. Here's what Jesus said. He said, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Isn't that amazing? Like Peter knew what was going on. Like he knew that Satan was working behind the scenes and he was trying to sift Peter like wheat. But he had said then said, I'm going to be praying for you. So not only did Jesus know what was going to happen, he knew why it was going to happen. He knew about the spiritual battle that was taking place. And he said, I'm praying for you that when you return, God will use you to strengthen your brothers. He says, this isn't going to end up being a testimony and something that ends up being what you think is a weakness can turn to God's grace and become a story of what he's done for you. Jesus knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows the sin behind the sins, and he's ready to forgive us at any moment. In fact, he's praying for you. Jesus is praying for you like he would pray for Peter. Hebrews says that we have one who always lives to make intercession for us. He's praying that you would return and that your testimony would be a testimony of God's grace in your life. You feel like we heard Brandon share today. So let's return to him. Let's make this return to him and Jesus' restoration a testimony. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.